Welcome to Backstage at Upstage, a presentation of Upstage Lung Cancer, which uses the performing arts to raise awareness and funding for lung cancer research. Here's your host, the founder and president of Upstage Lung Cancer, Hilde Grossman. Hi, I'm Hilde Grossman, and we're so excited to have you with us today backstage at Upstage. And here's my good pal, Jordan Rich. Hilde, we are thrilled to welcome a great friend of Upstage Lung Cancer. She's been a guest on more than one occasion. Today, the spotlight is hers. Dr. Francine Lee Jacobson, Assistant Professor Harvard Medical School with the Brigham and Women's Hospital Department of Radiology, here to answer many of the questions and concerns that patients have. So we turn things over to you, Hilde. I'm so delighted today to have two wonderful close friends with me on this podcast. Um, of course, Jordan Rich, my my co-host on this show, and then dear Francine Jacobson, uh, who is a thoracic radiologist and um, master of many, many ideas and uh, creative directions. So welcome to both of you. And today we're going to discuss um, a lot of issues around diagnosis and treatment of lung cancer, in particular what it's like from the perspective of patients and patients' families, as well as maybe the from the perspective of a radiologist. So we're going to just let it wing today <laughs> and see what we come up with. But certainly um, one notion, especially speaking of uh, radiation and radiology, et cetera, et cetera, is, you know, um, the whole issue of lung cancer screening and scans. So maybe saying we've had a couple of wonderful podcasts I hope everybody will take a look at on, on the whole issue of screening, but maybe saying a word or two about the importance of lung cancer screening, Francine. The treatment for your lung cancer will be easier and easier on you and your family if it's found early. And that might be my best ad for screening if you meet criteria and not delaying seeing a doctor if you have symptoms. Um, because the earlier the stage lung cancer, the more we can treat it for local control. And I'm going to, from what you said about radiation in low-dose CT, we have very little, little, little radiation. Radiation for treating lung cancer is at the other end of the spectrum because we're actually trying to kill cells that are cancerous. And I think maybe it's confusing for patients to understand, I'll call it the good radiation and the bad radiation, <laughs> in that we try not to provide radiation therapy with our diagnostic tests, even though when you go to all the appointments, sometimes it must feel like you're getting some radiation therapy along the way. But radiation for treatment is usually handled in a very focal way for lung cancer so that we don't irradiate good lung tissue and other body parts. Um, so it's different than just taking your whole chest, it's pointed at the cancer, and it's a lot more radiation. But I think patients do get confused about whether the radiation they're getting is for diagnosis or for treatment. And that might be from the perspective of a diagnostic radiologist, um, but I think it's also pretty much where John Q. Public comes from as far as understanding radiation, because we do, as radiologists, try to minimize the amount of radiation to keep it as safe as possible. I think uh, listening to you, uh, one of our uh, listeners might feel kind of scared. Um, it sounds kind of scary. There's there's bad radiation, there's good radiation. 
Is any radiation okay? What's this all about? And so one of the issues we've focused on is early detection uh, in upstage lung cancer. That's a major concern for us because as you say, Francine, getting finding lung cancer early really allows um, a lot of options for treatment and, and essentially making lung cancer uh, a long-term uh, chronic disease rather than something uh, to feel like it's it's going to end your life. So there are very positive reasons for getting lung cancer screening early. And there are more and more criteria available for people to get lung cancer screening early, although even now, and that's essentially, that's to get the screening and get it paid for by insurance. But um, even now, um, there are people who um, really warrant that kind of screening and aren't able to get it. Uh, we had a wonderful podcast, this recent podcast on um, Asian Americans and barriers to treatment. And one of the things that came from this, although it was obvious, I thought to myself, oh my God, that's just true, which is there's a high incidence of, of lung cancer in non-smoking Asian women. And guess what? The cancer, lung cancer screening that allows the, uh, the insurance companies to pay for uh, your lung cancer screening does not include non-smokers. So there's a, the irony that more women um, uh, are getting lung cancer who are not smokers and yet that's not covered by insurance. But I think that may be beyond the topic for today. But um, let's get back to current events. Opening in some ways with the news last week where the NBC Nightly News went about the ability of artificial intelligence to detect future lung cancer and predict when it might occur is something that is a game changer for the energy and public commitment of resources for identifying lung cancer early. And over the next few years, we will see the dose for lung cancer screening come down at or below that of a chest X-ray. And that says to me, we this is my personal vision for it, that we could move to having population screening a bit more like colonoscopy. And perhaps that means at age 50, Everyone is eligible for a low-dose screening CT, and then based on the results and the probabilities of what will happen to the patient in the future, it could be decided just like you get told you're at somebody to come back in 10 years or five years or three years, um, that a patient would be assigned an interval to come back, and that we won't be screening people necessarily as often we would be able to screen more people to get coverage for everyone. Right. So I think uh, there's a lot of work to be done to make this kind of um, early detection assessment available to more people. That's a game changer on every account. I just wanted to add some historical reference here from a personal point of view. Um, when my late wife, who passed away in 2013, 10 years ago now, when she was first diagnosed in the late 80s with uh, not lung cancer, but Hodgkin's disease, I remember distinctly, you know, the procedurals that we went through. And they used the term blasting radiation. But that uh, radiation blast is what we suspect led to the lung cancer 20 
years later. It is absolutely. Radiation itself is a cause of cancers, not just lung cancer, but definitely of lung cancer. And the most common radiation therapy, and it was often applied to teenagers who developed Hodgkin's disease, was sort of a T-shape on the chest. So you can imagine that taking in quite a bit of the heart and also lungs and other tissue in the chest. And it is a toxic exposure because we're killing the, the lymphoma tumor. Right. And the results aren't felt for years in some cases, as was the case with us. And It's generally 20 or more years before the cancer would develop, which is not necessarily different from developing lung cancer and other cancers from carcinogenic uh, exposures. Mm-hmm. The environment that helps to produce it may interact with genes within a patient's body. So different people will have different experiences. But the part that's attributable to the radiation, I already believe that your wife died from a radiation-induced lung cancer when we were 40 years ago, and it was wonderful that we could save people from lymphoma and leukemia. We knew that we were maybe planting seeds of something that would be hard 20 years later, but you had to live those 20 you, years exactly. to have that problem. Exactly. We, we wouldn't have traded that at the time, of course. And Hildy, I, I would love to, and I'm going to turn the tables on you with a question. From your perspective, and you've talked about your diagnosis, and that was many years after my wife's initial diagnosis, you know, how had things changed the way I described it and the way you describe it in terms of testing and also treatment? I'll answer that, and I and then I wanted to go back and touch on something you both are, are talking about. For me, which was at the very end of 2006, so um, anybody who has looked at our Upstage Lung Cancer website could see that, as I always say, if I can get lung cancer, anyone can. So I didn't smoke, and I was healthy, athletic. I was making a... a um, a CD at the time as a singer, I, you know, I thought, well, we'll see what happens before and after any kind of uh, diagnosis and treatment. So in any case, um, it wasn't entirely clear there. They had a lot of questions about whether or not I actually did have any kind of a cancerous tumor in my right lung. Um, I had a PET scan. It's still didn't tell anything, and maybe Francine could just give us a sentence about what a PET scan is. A PET scan uses radionuclide energy to identify the activity of glucose in cells that is high in tumor cells. The individual lung nodule was the first reimbursable reason to have a PET scan. It was the first reason insurance covered it. But we learned by the time you were diagnosed that it's not as helpful for early lung cancer because the lung cancers are not big, solid, and biologically active. A lot of them are very early, indolent, slow processes that don't use glucose. So I understand your experience. Okay, so basically what Francine was saying is, you know, there's a lot of uh, um, activity and, and, and chemicals going on. 
you know, sugars in, in, in your body. And the PET scan can somehow tag this and look at that activity and make some decision about whether or not there's a tumor there. Well, in any case, I started with an MRI. That's where the question came up. Perhaps there was something there. It was incidental because of a whole long story that I won't go back into. But please do go to Upstage Lung Cancer and look at my story, which is crazy story, but um, interesting. In any case, so it started with the MRI, then I had a PET scan, and that wasn't clear at all. Uh, then I had a CT scan, and it looked much more likely that there might be a tiny tumor in my middle and lower lobe. I believe it's been so long, I can't remember. Your right, your right lobe, your right lung has three lobes, and the left lung has two. Um, so I was, I had one in one in the middle lobe and one in either the upper or lower, I can't remember. In any case, um, so that still wasn't positive, I mean, clear. So I then had a uh, biopsy. And so that biopsy then determined that I had um, a lung cancer. And it was very fortunate for me that it was in a very super early stage. And so I, um, I, only, had, um, I only had surgery mm -hmm. and felt very fortunate. Diagnostically, from 2006 to 2023, we're talking almost 20 years. Give us a sense as to what's new. We talked about PET scan then, but what's new in terms of equipment, in terms of technology that we should be excited about? Some of it is the technology, but it's also our understanding of the biology using the technology, which from the standpoint of re-examining your experiences from years ago may be even more helpful because we didn't have the knowledge about early lung cancer to the extent that we have it now. And that, even with the equipment that we used in 2002, is what we used for the National Lung Screening Trial. And we found early lung cancer, but we also started learning, and we have continued to this day to continue learning and changing how we approach very early lung cancer, because a lot of it is watchful waiting to try and let it declare itself. It's really not unusual to have an incidental discovery of early lung cancer, just in a sense, the same way very advanced cancer 50 years ago would be discovered because someone had a neck pain or shoulder pain and, and popped into an X-ray, um, a mass, and that would be the beginning of their cancer story. But these stories that are so early with indolent lung cancer, some people may be older and not necessarily even need a lot of treatment to not die from lung cancer. So it is on multiple fronts becoming a more chronic disease. And how frequently someone is imaged is one of the things that has changed as we've learned more. So that if you compare what happened years ago to now, we sometimes know that something, even in the National Lung Screening Trial, at first we were going to follow up a questionable finding, like what happened to Hildy in three months. By the time my patient came back at three months, we had stretched it out to six months because we were just not able to tell enough about the change in such a short period of time. Now, as technology advances and the images are much more close to histologic images in pathology, we can also shorten the time to understand what a tumor is up to. And the need for a biopsy before surgery 
may be less based on some of our imaging and how it works. But each case needs to be worked out with a treatment plan and even the rest of the diagnostic workup because the, um, it, the surgeons will look for lymph node metastases, um, spread of tumor regionally in the lung that, and to the media, to the lung clearing lymph nodes that are too small for us to even pick up on a PET CT today. So if it's too small for a PET CT, are you saying that surgeons can still see it if it's too small for a No, what what will happen is if you have one of the procedures that a patient might have is a staging mediastinoscopy. And that's a scope that's used in the mediastinum to harvest lymph nodes, to send them to the pathologist to look at the actual histology cell by cell uh, what's in the lymph node. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. As thousands of audience members know, upstage lung cancer events, the concerts, are fun, meaningful, inspiring, and memorable. And you should know that we invest in cutting-edge diagnostic research to find lung cancer early and greatly improve on the five-year survival rate. We also bring voice to the fact that young people get lung cancer. They really do. Unfortunately, doctors don't know how or why. Proceeds from our concerts support research to help find answers to these questions. Hilde Grossman and her team aim to entertain and inform because the show must go on. Find out how you can help at upstagelungcancer.org. Basically, I think what I'm hearing is there are a lot of ways of trying to make some decision about uh, the presence of lung cancer, um, the spread of lung cancer, and then making decisions based on all that information about what kind of treatment to, uh, you know, to be looking for. So one of the things, this is going back a, a, a few minutes ago, but I'm always concerned about not jacking up additional anxiety because I think just the word cancer is enough to make uh, many people the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And certainly having that told to you that that's something you have is a very scary concept. So one of the questions I was going to say is there you were talking before about treatments that it sounds like they don't exist in that way anymore for um, lymphoma or leukemias. Basically, if people are hearing this uh, broadcast and they had one of these treatments early on in their life, how much of a worry should that be for them? How can they address that at this point? Should they be talking to their doctor about concerns about something happening based on those early um, treatments? That's actually a great question. And I'd like to sort of use an example of a typical story that I encounter in my work. I may find a patient comes in for a CT for a different reason, and I'm looking at a CT scan, and I think the patient might have had that kind of radiation as a teenager. By the time she's 50 years old, it may have disappeared from her medical record. I have gone back not infrequently to something like the um, obstetrician's note when the patient was in their 20s or early 30s having children to confirm it. Because one thing that's valuable to the patient, if you have had a cancer in the past, this is not strictly an issue of whether you qualify for screening. The idea that the patient should have some kind of intermittent continuing surveillance 
for looking for these downstream cancers years later is paid for generally by your insurance. It's not a problem. It requires the piece of history. Another thing that I think is helping to make this happen, we now have survivorship groups for people who have had cancers so they can keep up with what kinds of things happen to them. And some of them also help each other to adjust to whatever changes they have endured in their, how their body performs for them because of their cancer. So they're, pop, they're very useful on many levels and the physicians who run them are very tuned in to what can happen to you five, 10, 20, and 30 years later and how to look into that in a way that is not gonna be scary and will also be covered by your insurance. So how do people find these survivorship groups? If someone's listening today and says that that sounds like a good idea, there there might be people talking about things I'm worried about and they've experienced similar things. How would they find such groups? Dana-Farber Cancer Institute maintains survivorship groups. And um, in 2023, um, almost anybody who is still alive after having had cancer um, has some familiarity with doing a search. So regardless of where you are, if you're looking for a cancer survivorship support group, the other thing you can do is contact advocacy groups, the American Lung Association and other organizations, even upstage lung cancer. Right. And GoTo is another um, opportunity for um, mm-hmm. this kind of outreach, and so is longevity. I have a, a question that's relevant to what we're talking about. People fear not even as much the no, – let me say that again. I have a question that's relevant. People often fear the cure. They fear the treatment. They fear the uh, effects of same. And I'm just using memory now. When we first encountered radiation treatment 30-plus years ago, there were a lot of side effects that were standard. And I'm wondering how the side effect question is handled these days. Obviously, every patient is unique, Francine. But in general, what are the results of treatment in today's radiation, in today's radiation therapy programming? So the issue for radiation side effects is varied by what part of the body is irradiated and how the radiation gets there. Because if we provide radiation that's to tissue that's very superficial, perhaps like a breast mass region after resection, that is still going to put radiation to the skin. And the skin may have changes and some sloughing and different things. Radiation therapy globally tends to make people tired while they're doing it. All radiation therapy units are very adept at helping you to have um, preferred parking, quick in and out, because a lot of times there's daily or treatments for a period of time that may vary from just a few days to several weeks. Um, And it can be tiring and it can be an emotional thing as well. Now, when we talk about inside the chest, if we do what we call external beam and we're going all the way through, we need to have more radiation and we're going to touch other organs. The esophagus goes through the middle of the chest and somebody may end up with pain when they swallow and esophagitis and symptoms and the other kinds of things that would happen 
um, there's radiation when it's given to the bone, may make your pain go away very magically. So radiation can also be a very good thing as well as a, a two-edged sword. And there are radiation uh, approaches that also put the radiation very directly where it's going. A prostate gland, a little far from the lung, but it's often treated for radiation with even seeds of radioactive material that are right placed within the gland. So there's a range of what we can do. And for lung cancer, the most common kind of radiation now is actually to target it so that we minimize the amount of non-tumor treated both in the lung and the surrounding organs and outside the body. And a lot of this is accomplished by having different angles of radiation. The planning is much more complicated than what was built for creating the radiation program for your wife 40 years ago. Well, I think that's one of the things that, again, I would hope people will take away from this conversation that people may know someone or have some idea of what radiation therapy was 20, 30, 40 years ago, and that that's what's changed. Maybe the the tools the the um, the tools have changed somewhat, but but um, the methods um, that are used have changed a lot. And also, as you mentioned, uh, CT scans, the radiation has gotten lower and lower and continues to get lower. So um, anybody who's afraid of, of being exposed to radiation, and I'm not sure about this, you might be able to come up with it. You know, it's like when you get on an airplane, there's radiation, you know, there's all sorts of places, don't, don't stop flying people, but um, there are all sorts of <laughs> circumstances where we expect, experience radiation all, all over the place. So um, to know that the CT scan can be so um, so essential in diagnosing um, lung cancer, especially in, in an early stage um, where it's a little more difficult to find, um, is really important to know um, how how low you know the dose is now, and that 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 that's just tremendously helpful. You're right, though, that a lot of the radiation we get as just general background radiation um, is from walking around, not even being on the beach and sunbathing, and especially going up in airplanes, which people do not give a second thought to. Um, and maybe the answer is to distract yourself with a trip before you have to have your next scan. <laughs> I like it. That's a that's a great idea. Good plan. Um, one of the things I wanted to touch on, and I don't know how much this impacts you as a radiologist, how much people talk about how scared they are, um, but certainly, again, it's something as being a lung cancer uh, survivor. Um, also, when I'm not um, singing or producing shows. I'm also a psychologist, so this is certainly something I think about a great deal, um, is, is managing the fear that's associated with the diagnosis and the various treatments. So I, I don't know how much people talk to you um, when they were coming to get um, a scan uh, or any kind of um, radiation treatment. Well, the, the biggest part of what I want to share came to me through the director of the survivorship program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, who has done significant research on the subject 
working with patients. And the average patient is concerned and preoccupied for approximately two weeks before the scan. So they have their own meetings and help each other plan things to make the time go faster. It isn't the time to not be busy and distracted. I'm not saying everybody has a wedding to plan in that period of time, but I wasn't really trying to just be facetious about go take a trip, do something that will be meaningful to you and make it like, I don't have time to think about that because then suddenly that two weeks is gone. Another thing that I think maybe helps our patients, and this is from my own practice, we do a lot of scan and see the doctor in within an hour or so, so that the patient is not waiting on the other side of the scan for a prolonged period of time, worried about what the scan did show. I'll tell you a story, and this is just my personality, I guess, um, where I'm always uh, interested in empowering patients. So when I was first diagnosed, um, I think I had to go back three months later and get a scan just to see what was going on. And that's so anxiety provoking because what am I going to find? What will, you know, you can think of worst case scenario, depends on your personality. You can think of best case scenario. Uh, People either think about it a lot or don't think about it a lot. But for me, I'm that kind of person who wants to know like what's going on. So um, I had the scan on Thursday and um, I was supposed to see my oncologist on Tuesday. And I spoke with somebody else who said they didn't have an oncologist. They just dealt with the surgeon and that the surgeon met her, you know, that same morning, you know, so let's get a scan, come over in an hour or two, and the surgeon would go over the results. So um, I thought, well, that's for me. I'm I, I thought to myself, if I have to wait from Thursday to Tuesday, being me, my own personality, which is not everybody's, I will pump out so much cortisol, which is a stress, you know, stress chemical, that it won't be worth waiting that time. So I switched things around. Oh, so I had it set up. I was going to be a scan on Thursday, see the oncologist on Tuesday, then see the surgeon the next Thursday just for follow up. And I so I changed it. I had the scan on Thursday. I saw the surgeon the same day. And then I saw the oncologist on Tuesday. So she walked into the office and she said, well, everything looks good. And I said, yeah, I know. I'm really, I'm so relieved. And she said, well, how do you know? And I, and she, and I said to her, well, you know, I went to the surgeon the same afternoon. So I could, I couldn't wait till Tuesday. That just wasn't going to be an option. And she said, oh, You've stolen my thunder. I'll never forget that. So I'm just telling you out there, it your life is not about making the doctor's thunder work well and feel good. It's about what you need to take care of yourself. Not everyone's going to function the way I do. I also had a major, prof- my statistics professor in graduate school, whom I was very close to, had kidney cancer. And we had a discussion about these scans. And so he said, um, I said, oh, my God, don't you want to know immediately? And he was the kind of person who said, no, 
I have to wait a month to hear. It's all right with me. So I'm just telling you, there is a broad range of people who have different kinds of needs. And what I would love to encourage anybody who's listening, because everyone will be in some kind of medical circumstance at some point in their life. There's no, we don't get through this life if you live long enough um, without having some medical problems. But I just would encourage you to try to speak up for what your own needs are and and feel like and and know that you can have a voice in a ni- in the nicest possible way. I and if say. you're Hilda, you can also sing it. <laughs> you can actually right. <laughs> sing a lullaby, or uh, more importantly, uh, an overture to the dark. Move quicker. <laughs> I'm having a scan today. I'll have a scan today. Yeah, it's true. true. I think that's actually why the world wants patient-centered care. And that's why now we're having so much discussion about within our American melting pot culture that we have multiple cultures and very different needs, some of which are just lifelong. It's, it's the culture you grew up in and what you expect. And there's more and more emphasis on trying to meet the patient where the patient is rather than forcing the patient to um, conform to the doctor. So I, 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 I absolutely love that you brought that up because that you talk about trends and how things have changed rather than the doctor being God and walking in in a white coat, you know, with a crown on, on their heads, you know, and you, <laughs> you just are at the mercy of the doctor. Doctors want to, most doctors want to have a collaboration and a conversation with you. And so that's, you know, that's really important. And I also wanted to add that many of the pharmaceutical companies that um, upstage lung cancer works with, um, they have um, a, a tremendous interest in hearing from patients and allowing patients to have a voice in their own treatment, especially where medications are concerned or finances are concerned. So yeah, bringing this around to um, making patients as um, empowered as we can make them, um, that's the name of the game. Well, this has, as always, been um, a wonderful conversation. And uh, thank you so much, Francine, for um, adding your expertise and your experience for today. Jordan and I are both um, very grateful to have Mm. you. And uh, Everybody, please take a listen to other podcasts that we have. Um, they're all wonderful. I don't think there's a dud in the, in the bunch. So um, take care, everyone. Be healthy and use your voice when you need to. To find out how you can join Upstage Lung Cancer in raising awareness and funding to beat lung cancer, visit our website, upstagelungcancer.org. We invite you to subscribe and download our podcast available on all platforms. And we love reviews and ratings. After all, we're showbiz people. There's more entertainment and inspiration to come on the next podcast episode of Backstage at Upstage.